Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Susie Godson, co-founder of Me Too, an app that allows kids aged 11 to 25 to anonymously seek and offer advice from peers in their age range. Real life moderators work in the background to vet every post, making sure the advice offered is sound and any alarming content or concerns are directed to professional counselors. 50,000 teens and young adults use it. And they've recently launched a mirror version where teachers can connect anonymously with other teachers to talk about their own mental health challenges or how to help their students. Me Too also works with schools whose students are using the app to aggregate that anonymous data so leaders can see exactly what issues are happening inside their communities. This conversation covers a lot of ground and is literally packed with data. We discuss what different age groups are worried about, teacher mental health and the abysmal lack of support they get for themselves and also to support their students. Teachers do not go into teaching to become mental health practitioners. What kids spend 7,200 hours in schools. So obviously these issues are gonna manifest in schools and, and schools need way more support way more funding, way more training. We cannot expect schools to be solving much bigger social problems. The lack of kind of a broader understanding of what's going on, it's wrong. We talk about how Me Too was born and how it has evolved from a way to help young adults with not a lot of ways to make money to a social enterprise making money from packaging important and hard to get data for schools who need it. We talk about peer support and whether that even makes sense and the virtuous cycle of giving advice, learning how to give better advice and the boost we get from helping others. Susie's also the sex and relationships columnist at the Times and I appreciated her insights on everything from gender fluidity and understanding self-harm to the power of data to try and help young people and teachers. I hope you enjoy listening to this half as much as I enjoyed recording it. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Susie Godson, it is such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I have maybe 10,000 questions for you, so let's get started as quickly as we can. How did Me Too come about? What is your origin story? I've been writing about sex and relationships for a million years, and I've always had emails and letters and you know requests from young people about really awkward, difficult things that they couldn't talk about with, you know, their peers or, or with their parents or with teachers. And I always felt that digital, um, something that was safe, something that was really sort of sensible where they could get one-to-one anonymous advice, preferably from their peers, would be the way to go because there's so much stigma around it. And so kids just don't know what's normal. There's no benchmark. You know, everybody thinks that everybody else is doing everything and they're not. And I just, I thought it would be a really good way of getting around that. And I thought about it for a really long time, but I'm not a tech person. And it was only when I met my co-founder, Shosha Conley, that I realized that we could build it together. So we literally did it by the book, Lean Startup, page by page, built a really kind of rudimentary little MVP, went and tested it with teenagers in three schools in East London and rapidly realised that sex and relationships was a big issue, but there was a much, much, much bigger (laughs) issue that we kind of missed. So, for example, the kid who was struggling to come out also had homophobic parents, was being bullied at school, was suffering from anxiety and was failing academically as a result of all of that. 
so we realized that you know there was really a much bigger umbrella and so it kind of went in the mental health space it's really about life support for young people i mean we rapidly realized that it was very needed and then we had the issue of finding the funding to actually build an app that worked and, and we took it from there as you say, it evolved into this anonymous peer-to-peer support in a forum moderated by a professional counselor. But now it has two new components. It has a teacher peer-to-peer support component, and you have these insights that you gather the data anonymously for a school, for an NHS clinical commissioning group, for a local authority. You take that data and you can tell a leader, these are the issues that your students have. These are the issues that your teachers are having. Let's start with the teachers. How did that piece come about? We went into COVID and we had like 20,000 kids using the app. And we were obviously tracking that very, very carefully. And, you know, the numbers were growing massively. It went to 40,000, it went to 50,000. And as kids were preparing to go back to school, we decided to run a survey to see what kind of mental health support there was in place for the kids and what teachers were feeling about it. So we sent out a survey. It wasn't a huge survey. It was like 600 teachers. And we had a few questions about teacher mental health and teacher support and, you know, who was supporting them and what kind of training did they have in order to support all these kids that were coming back who were freaked out after being at home, you know, and out of school. And, And the results were just shocking. You know, the lack of mental health training, 40% didn't have any at all. And was there any support for those teachers? A third of teachers, there was absolutely no support for them within the school in terms of their own mental health. And 93% of them said that they'd been more stressed than ever in their life in the previous two years. We had created a really effective solution for young people. And we realized that we could apply the same solution to teachers. So we rapidly went around building and developing a a parallel app for teachers, which will really only kick in now this September. And so what it means is that teachers can anonymously talk about the stuff that they don't feel they can talk about at school. And it's also got a huge directory of resources, which includes, you know, mental health, information, education, training. They can access all the crisis support, the helplines, people like education support and it's basically just a place where teachers can offload with each other and the thing about peer support is it means you're talking to people that understand what we're going through and and that's what makes all the difference for the young people and for the teachers they're not talking to an expert they're talking to somebody who's on the same level as them who's having the same problems as them and that is incredibly effective So this product for teachers is being launched as well. Let me ask a little bit about the peer support, because I was thinking about this. When I was in high school, a really close friend, her brother died in a very tragic accident. And we all, you know, rallied around her. We did our best. And kind of recently, I said to her, you know, what was that like? She said, you guys were hopeless. Like you just, you tried your best and you were there for me, but like you didn't know what to do. And that was an extreme situation. But I was reflecting on that last night thinking, like, do we really want peers giving peer? Like, if these kids are upset about stuff, how reliable are these peers to give sane advice? Peer support is amazing, but it has to be guided. You know, out, out in the world, we do our best to help, but we're not necessarily saying the right things. And that's, that's true of teachers. You know, teachers are the first port of call for a kid who's upset about something. But teachers, if they don't have the training, they may 
unintentionally give the wrong advice or say the wrong thing. So it's really important that it's guided and structured. So within the app, 85% of the interactions are peer-to-peer. We have a team of moderators and they check every single post and reply. And then we have a whole load of guidance messages that will, if something is inaccurate, if it's unhelpful, if it's not the right thing to say at that point, if it's too therapeutic or giving medical advice, it gets withheld and the person has sent a message saying, this isn't right for these reasons. And so they can restructure this, the support that they supply. The other sort of secret weapon that we have is we have what we call super peers. Within the app, they look exactly like anybody else, but they're actually undergraduate psychology students who we have trained. We volunteer as part of their course and they get course credit for doing it. And it's an opportunity for them to work directly with young people, but all of their support is also moderated and checked. And what they do is they give model replies. It's like stealth education. We can see how by seeing another reply that's that's really well structured and gives good advice, all the other young people in the app are able to follow that model. And so we can see it sort of spreading out. And it's that thing of where if you expose young people to the good stuff, they they learn by themselves. You know, it's independent learning. They have agency. They don't have anyone telling them what to do, but they can see that in that interaction, the really good advice is the advice that gets a really, thank you, that really helped me so much. And the peer interaction is a, is a dynamic where the person giving the help gets something back, gets thanked, gets endorsed, and, and that's the momentum that keeps the whole thing going. So it's peer support, but within a structured framework. We've designed it so that it's safe. I mean, safeguarding is at the very cool. And we also don't expose them to very serious issues like suicidal young people. Their post goes straight into quarantine to be dealt with by a counsellor because we don't feel that our young people are equipped to deal with that. And the other thing about the app is that it's age bounded. So, you know, you see posts from people who are two years older and two years younger. That kind of cohort moves with you up through the app so that you're kind of creating this, these little bubbles of people who are in the same time frame because the issues that a 14-year-old is worrying about are very different to the issues that an 18-year-old is worrying about. Well, let's dig into that because I think everybody's going to be desperate to know what the data says. I mean, you pointed out to me that um, you were very interested in the Ofsted report on sexual abuse that came out in June 2021. That report was, depending on how familiar you are with these issues, probably quite shocking to a general public, 90% of girls and 50% of boys said that they were routinely sent explicit pictures or videos of things they didn't want to see. Sexual harassment was so commonplace that it was often unreported. 92% of girls, 74% of boys said sexist name calling happens all the time or sometimes. And then we also had Everyone's Invited, a form in which students detailed publicly sexual abuse, rape culture they'd faced in schools. So what are you finding are the most common issues with tweens and teens and young adults? You know, it's a hugely broad spectrum. But I would say about the Ofsted report, that is the fourth report tackling that issue. It's impossible for schools to deal with this issue, especially when you consider that most of the online abuse doesn't even happen on campus. And as you said, it's not reported to the schools. Why would it be? You know, kids don't feel it will be taken seriously. They don't want to snitch on their peers. They feel that the abuse they would get for snitching is worse than 
suffering, what they're getting online. And as you say, it's so commonplace now that the boundaries between, you know, what's normal are just so blurred for young people. So I do think that, you know, laying more policies on schools and, and expecting them to deal with what is a much bigger social problem is, is not correct. Tasking teachers to teach RSHE better. I mean, what is that about? It's a specialist subject. It's incredibly difficult to talk about. Adults can barely talk about sex and relationships with each other. How are they going to expect your English teacher to suddenly transition into this amazing RSHE teacher? with very little training or no training at all. It's pie in the sky, it's ridiculous. And also what I find incredible is how there's no joined up thinking here. So Ofsted go in and look at this single issue, which is sexual abuse, online harassment, and don't look at the parallel consequences. The mental health issues with young people in school are absolutely enormous. Those things are not coincidental. They're not unrelated. Girls are twice as likely to be sexually assaulted as boys. Girls are twice as likely to have mental health issues as boys. The consequences of sexual assault on girls is an increased rate of suicide. I mean, the statistics, which are all in the 2020 crime survey, the, the statistics around the relationship between mental health issues and sexual assault and rape and suicide are so strong, and yet Ofsted completely ignores that. Teachers do not go into teaching to become mental health practitioners, but kids spend 7,200 hours in schools. So obviously these issues are going to manifest in schools, and, and schools need way more support, way more funding, way more training. We cannot expect schools to be solving much bigger social problems. The lack of kind of a broader understanding of what's going on, it's wrong. I think our audience in particular, which is school leaders, would like to hear recommendations, very specific targeted recommendations. But I do want to come back to this question of the data, and maybe we do it by age group, because I think people will, will want to know. Years seven and eight are key. The transition into secondary school and those first two years in secondary school, the main issue is friendship. And again, teachers didn't go into teaching to help kids make friends. But actually, in terms of mental health and well-being, teachers would be much better focused on, on helping children create secure social networks in those first two years of secondary school than focusing on academics. Because actually, the relationship between anxiety, insecurity, not having friends, and poor academic attainment is so high that actually investing in making sure the kids in your class are happy, have friends, and feel, and feel secure is, is much more important in a way than, than teaching them, you know, algebra. One of the key problems with kids aged 11 to 13 is self-harm. I don't know many teachers that stand up in their class and think that one in four of the students in their class are self-harming, especially when their students are 11, 12, and 13. But that is the truth. And actually, you know, the Ofsted report says that schools need to assume that sexual abuse is happening. Schools need to assume that self-harm is happening and self-harm is happening much more profoundly in years seven, eight and nine than it is in the older years. For RSHE, the focus really needs to be on those early years because actually the Ofsted data and lots of other data shows that sexual harassment and abuse doesn't really start particularly for girls until over the age of 14. So by the age of 14, girls and boys need to have a rock-solid understanding of consent, a rock-solid understanding of what their legal rights are, how to 
reports online abuse, to feel confident that they can talk to somebody and that they will be listened to, that action will be taken and it won't be ignored. So all of that stuff needs to be in place early. And at the moment, it doesn't kick in until much later. And structurally and neurodevelopmentally, all of that is wrong. So that needs to turn and the focus on all of those issues needs to be in those younger years. So shift a little bit to the older groups. What are their significant issues and how should schools be thinking about addressing and supporting them for those? Issues are much more around relationships. So, you know, sexual relationships, romantic relationships, not knowing how to handle them. And these are the kids that haven't had the proper RSAG. So obviously they don't have an understanding because those things haven't been openly spoken about. When we look at the older cohorts in Me Too, you were talking about proper established mental health issues that haven't been picked up sooner because they've been ignored in the earlier years. They haven't had the help. 70% of young people with mental health issues don't get any treatment at all. 50% of mental health issues manifest by the age of 14, 75% by the age of 18, and yet 70% of kids don't ever get any treatment. You know, the waiting lists for CAMs are appalling. Lots of schools don't have any school counsellors. And the irony is that £45 million a year is wasted on missed CAMs appointments. And that's why digital models, apps like ours, where kids can get support immediately, are so important. They're not going to get a face-to-face appointment. You know, we have to completely rethink mental health care in that respect. 99% of kids in the UK have a smartphone So delivering treatment via smartphone, which we've all learned is possible through the pandemic, that has to be the model going forward. However, digitally, delivering one-to-one counselling is as labour-intensive and as human-intensive as delivering it face-to-face, which is why scalable solutions such as peer support are really, I think, the only way forward. And I saw that you're planning on incorporating some AI into your model. Exciting for a scalability, but I then wonder then how do you keep it personal? Like how do you then keep that human touch? We're not putting chatbots in and we're not letting the AI moderate. You know, we started out in a very simple way, but it turns out that we unwittingly designed something incredibly sophisticated, which was by pre-moderating all our data is tagged and categorized and risk assessed and sorted. For the moderators, that means that when a post comes in, they will tag it under all the topics that it relates to. And the machine learning that we've developed examines the text for sentiment, suggests the categories that should be sorted and just speeds up things for the moderator. However, there's all sorts of ways that we can then use it in a much more sophisticated way to help us analyze our data. So it will never replace humans' context is so important and only humans can really understand the very specific context around what kids are saying to each other. Okay, now we're gonna hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, engagement manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know Smart as the maker of whiteboards, but Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other smart things Smart is doing, including a self-assessment tool. Jonathan, tell me what a smart ed tech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their ed tech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? 
Smart Z Tech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why a tech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. Who takes part of the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And it, essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organizations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and Cassell. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities were 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. Surprisingly, at least to some and to the popular narrative, you found that levels of anxiety and depression of self-harm all decreased in the pandemic, that kids were actually a little bit better. Levels of emotion and loneliness obviously went up, not surprising, but in general, kids were better. Now they're going back to school. How are they? We always see a spike in anxiety before school starts. I mean, that happens at half term, Easter, Christmas, so always. We've been tracking it for years. You can see that. However, it does settle down after a month. It's not there anymore. We're seeing huge spikes in everything going back to school. So all of those issues have, throughout COVID, increased as schools opened up or society opened up and then dropped when when society closed down. Now, you have to recognise that our population is a population of people who self-identify as being anxious. They self-harm. They are depressed. Unlike kids in the general population, our cohort is very specific. They're the kind of people who would prefer probably to be at home on a laptop and not dealing with the huge, busy kind of social environment of school, the stress of other people. We have to look at it in the terms of our population, that it is specific to that population. We can't generalise to the general population. I would also say that in general, I think everybody recognises that it's been harder for primary school kids than secondary school kids. Secondary school kids all have access to technology. They can keep in touch. You know, they're on their computers all the time. Younger kids, home learning has been much harder. Getting out, you know, they're dependent on a parent. That's where the real problems are. And there's going to have to be a huge 
focus on, on what's happened with that population. We start at 11, we don't go down to primary school level, but I'm pretty sure we'll see it when they all transition. You know, I, I suspect our year seven population will be quite stressy this year. When you say you see spikes and everything, are the spikes this year going back any higher than the spikes of any other September going back? They've been much more extreme. The lows and the highs have been much more extreme all through the pandemic. But I do think that young people are incredibly resilient. And if they have the right support and everybody's on board with trying to normalize things, I'm sure it will go back to normal. And how are teachers feeling? What are teachers' top concerns? So far, we've had a pilot population using the teacher app. So it's only really going to start from now. So to build the community, we need teachers to download the Me Too Connect app from the App Store and the Play Store and to get, get on in there and use it. But, you know, prior to this, it's quite depressing. Again, I don't know whether it's because the population of teachers that were in the pilot were, were particularly stressed. And so they chose to be part of the pilot because they were particularly stressed. I think we'll only begin to be able to see that over the next term. I think we've got something like 16 schools in Leicestershire doing a specific pilot with primary school teachers because the nice thing about the Me Too Connect app for teachers is that it can be for primary school teachers as well. And so we'll begin to get insight into what they're seeing with younger students because, as I said, I, I think actually COVID will have had a much bigger impact on them because they don't have ways of connecting to their peers. You told me that you had no revenue model. This was a very altruistic-born project, and I imagine that made fundraising quite challenging, as fundraisers like to see some revenue. But you have started very successfully packaging insights from your data for schools, for local authorities, for at NHS CCGs. How did you get to that piece of the model, and what are you offering? As our data set grew, you know, we have I don't know, over 600,000 data points. We realized it gave invaluable insights into youth mental health. And we started working with some universities doing some research using our data. You know, we, I think we started giving data sets to master's students who wanted to study it. So we got some research on what was going on with the app. And then we started working with Bristol University and we're doing lots and lots of stuff with them. And then we realized that actually the people that really would benefit the most from seeing our data would be the schools because it would give them the insight. You know, kids do not talk about this stuff with their schools. And yet schools are, A, paying a financial penalty. I think mental health issues in a single child cost something like £1,770 a year for each school per child. So, you know, there's a huge cost attached to that. So anything that helps schools to see what's going on with their students is going to be valuable. And so we work with some early adopters, amazing, amazing senior leaders who said, okay, I'll give it a go and and I'll pay you to show us the data set from our students. And it's been phenomenal. Having specific information about what's going on with your cohort means that you can target education and resources in the right place. So rather than a kind of spray and pray approach to mental health education, you can be really specific because you know what's going on. You have exact details of what your young people are worrying about. It also is an opportunity to to compare what's going on in the school to what's going on nationally or locally. Because obviously we can do comparative data sets. They are so different. 
wherever you are in the country. So a school in the Midlands will have a very, very different data set to a school in London. And then the other thing we give them is we write some in-depth reports. If the issue that comes up is, for example, self-harm, we'll give them some really in-depth and latest research on self-harm in, in that age group and what they can do about it. So there's a lot of very specific advice and guidance that goes with it as well. Because, you know, we, we are research-driven. We're obsessed with research. Is self-harm one of the biggest issues you're seeing? And when you see that, what are like three things a school could do today, any school, to address that, even if they don't have your data? Well, the first thing is to recognize that it will be happening in the younger year groups more than in the older year groups. So you have to catch it early. How to deal with it, it's very difficult because schools are legally obliged. If they find out that a kid is self-harming, they're legally obliged to inform their parents. But one of the reasons kids don't tell their schools that they're self-harming is because they don't want their parents to know. So that's a very kind of tricky conundrum. Often what happens is a young person will disclose on the app what's going on and what's really good about doing that anonymously in a place where they're not going to be judged is between peers and counsellors they start to unpack what's happening why they're doing it and they may be able to resolve the problem themselves so i would suggest that all schools should be giving the me to app to their kids it's free it's safe it's anonymous and we see that happening over and over again that when young people have an opportunity to get something off their chest they've been bottling this up for such a long time they've never spoken to anybody about it. The legal requirement of this school puts them off telling the school, giving them a safe space to anonymously disclose it where they can actually have support with changing the behaviour. And the great thing is that peers who have had the same experience are able to give them all the tips and the tricks and say, try it for 15 minutes, try it for 20 minutes, do 24 hours. And so they start to build up, you know, and they can also from the app, from our app, they can download apps like Calm Harm or uh, Contact Self Harm UK. There's a whole load of support mechanisms within the app that they can use as well. Within the school, I think actually acknowledging that self harm exists, talking about it, educating, particularly younger students, there's no point in burying your head in the sand and pretending that this stuff isn't happening. It is happening, it's scary, no one knows what to do about it, but ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. So giving, giving young people the opportunity to talk anonymously. I mean, if schools have a counsellor, um, young people will disclose maybe to the counsellor. But they're much more likely to disclose if they've had support from peers who say, tell your parents, they'll want to know, they'll want to help. It's also really important for schools to understand that self-harm actually works. It makes kids feel better for a lot of young people Cutting, for example, the consequences of getting a scar are actually less harmful than not doing it. And so in the same way that you can't just tell somebody who's an addict, you need to stop. You have to understand the cycle of self-harm. You have to understand that you know, the dopamine hit that they get from self-harm actually relieves their stress and makes them feel better. And it's the guilt and the shame and the scars that then make them feel worse again and then drive them to self-harm. So understanding that self-harm cycle, we've got a lot of information on that. And the reason self-harm happens so much when kids are younger is because the neurodevelopmental changes that are occurring in adolescence make them much more vulnerable to things like 
social rejection or ostracism. So at the time that they're going into secondary school and they're highly, highly sensitive to, to their social network, they rely more on issues like on, on relief mechanisms, coping mechanisms like self-harm. And these kids will also be having issues at home. So I think it's all about just like, let's not bury our head in the sands. Your day job is also a sex relationships columnist for The Times. As you said, this is a topic that is wildly uncomfortable for many people. But I'd love to get your thinking on why kids are depressed and anxious. And I want to ask it in this context. Jean Twen, she's a sociologist in the U.S., sort of wrote this big piece saying it's all social media. Social media is destroying a generation. What do you think is driving this? I don't think it's social media. There's been, a, there's been a ton of research that shows that it isn't social media. When it comes to young people, though, one thing I will say, and I'm, I'm constantly going back to friendship because it's such a big issue, is that popularity has always been, you know, a huge issue in schools. Young people now, they measure their friendship networks by the ton, by the thousand. And, and they have access to these very, very large superficial networks. And all the research shows that having a couple of really good friends is the most beneficial thing for your mental health. And so there is a conflict between, you know, the popularity contest on Instagram and what's really good for kids, which is these small social networks, having someone that you trust, that you can rely on, who has your back, who you can be open with, who you can share the intimate inner workings of your mind when you're 12. That is fundamentally important. And I think that that message has been lost and kids are very confused about what social networks mean. And I think for schools, just reminding them of that and showing them all the research that demonstrates so clearly that it's about quality, not quantity. And, you know, I think social media is responsible for creating that dynamic. Bigger picture, we live in a society where there's a 42% divorce rate. People remarry. Families are in all sorts of shapes that they weren't in before. It impacts kids if adults are not great about how they handle it. And let's face it, a lot of adults are not great about how they handle things like divorce and remarriage and suddenly introducing step-siblings or half-siblings. So yeah, I think we have to look in the mirror and say, what kind of society have we created and take some responsibility ourselves? It's so easy to blame an iPhone, but that's not where the responsibility lies. What about gender fluidity? This, is, this was a big topic all summer. You have some data that shows 22% of 12 to 18-year-olds are uncertain about their gender. I am so excited that we live in a society that accepts this and recognizes this. This is where we need to be. But I also feel like while it can be liberating for those who need it, I feel like it's also confusing. It's hard enough to figure out who you are as a 14-year-old. And now I think you're being asked to say, what is my gender and what is my sexuality? Again, such a sign of progress that we're accepting of this. But do you feel like it's also confusing kids and potentially causing anxiety? We have so much data on this. It's unbelievable. We ask people to volunteer their gender and sexuality if they want to when they register for the app. But I wanted to get some more sort of defined data around those issues. So I did a little survey and I, I think... I closed it after about a thousand 
kids responded. And it was a very, very simple survey. And I designed it so that on sexuality and gender, they could just use a slider. So instead of saying they were one or the other, they could just slide as in Kinsey's It's a Spectrum. So they could slide from being heterosexual to being homosexual or somewhere in the middle, you know, same with gender. And what was fantastic is that when we looked at the data, we did a kind of a heat map of the data. And for both gender and sexuality, under the age of 19, it was like really noisy in the middle. Really, really noisy. And then after the age of 19, it started to, all the noise in the middle started to disappear and people were much more clear about who they were and what they were. So there's a lot of confusion. Openness can create confusion because kids operate as a pack. And if one person does something, the other person well, maybe on that way as well. One thing we do, we have seen, is we have kids who come out as trans, who tell their family, a really big deal and then two years later decide that they're bisexual or they're homosexual or that they're not trans at all and they're actually gay and they're very confused around the you know the crossover between gender and sexuality for for a lot of kids it's not a big deal for others it's a huge deal and i kind of think the issue is not with the kids the issue is with adults it's our sort of fear about what it means for our kids if they decide that they're not you know, normal, that's the issue. And the reality is, I think if we, if we just accept what the data says, which is it's all a bit messy until you're 19, and it's only when you become an adult that you start to really understand who you are and, be, and, and that you start to be able to accept who you are and then your identity kind of clarifies. But I think in a weird way, the kind of judgmental discussion around all of this, that's what creates the anxiety. Openness and acceptance doesn't create anxiety. So I, I think we all, we all need to just step back and say, you know what? You be you. You do you. And let's see who you turn out to be when you're 20, you know. Three rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about sex and relationships? I really like Bernadine Evaristo's book, Three Women. And I just read Shuggy Bane. Wow. Amazing, amazing Yeah, kind of ruins you for a little while, but it's very good. I just read, read Detransition Baby, a really interesting insight into the whole trans phenomenon, you know, from a first-hand lived experience perspective. What are you binge-watching? I've just watched my unorthodox life. Really interesting. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you think about the TV show Sex Education. I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. So brilliant. Susie, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being with us. You're very welcome. It was really a joy for me. I loved the data that was packed into this episode. 98% of teachers think mental health problems are on the rise in students. 18% feel they have the tools to support them. 42% of teachers in her survey received no mental health training. The average was two hours per year. 49% of students turn to teachers first with their problems. One in five young people self-harm by age 16, but not a lot of schools are talking about it, and certainly not early enough. 76% of young people who have mental health issues get no help. 50% of those issues manifest by age 14 and 75% by age 18. This data both defines the scope of the problem and demands a response. I was a bit skeptical of peer-to-peer -peer advice, perhaps because I live with a 10 and 12-year-old. But Susie's right, students might not want to report serious things to schools who have a legal obligation to report something like self-harm. They fear not being taken seriously or getting ratted out. They want support from peers 
but are scared of what might happen if they're rejected. And they're all on their phones. So providing this space to let them offload, to build confidence in both asking for and receiving advice, all in an environment where trained professionals are watching and helping, seems not just smart, but very necessary. I love that they have created a mirror app for teachers who also need support and that they're providing packaged insights to educators so they can get a handle on what's happening inside their schools. I wish we lived in an environment where every child who needed help could get it for free and from trained professionals, but that's not the world we live in. And any tool that can help take away some of the pain out there for kids is one I think we should all embrace. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.